0: We are up to the book of Exodus, and Parshas Shemos and its 124 verses are going to orient around the Jewish people no longer as a family. Now we are a nation. We're totally entrenched in the land of Egypt, and the book begins with quite a depressing chapter. Previously, we had Joseph. He was our patron saint. He was our representative in Egyptian leadership Joseph has passed all of his brothers has passed there's a new pharaoh in town and he is dead set on subjugating us and the parsha begins with recapitulation of the names of the children of Israel the sons of Jacob it lists Reuben Shimon Levi Judah all 12 sons of Jacob it references the fact that Jacob arrived in Egypt with 70 souls. And once again, it reminds us that Joseph died, all his brothers died, the whole generation died. And the children of Israel now, the nation is fruitful, they're teeming, they're increased, they are proliferating in the land of Egypt quite numerously, and they quickly profligate and their population booms. Why does the book and the parsha have to begin with us being counted once again. After all, we just finished last week's Parsha, Parsha Tzvaychi, the last book of Genesis, and we talked about these 12 sons of Jacob quite comprehensively. So Rashi tells us, the first Rashi in the entire book, even though the sons of Jacob were counted during their lifetime, they were counted again after they had passed. Why? To show us how much God loves them. They're like stars, says Rashi. Just like every star is so powerful, so potent, so too the sons of Jacob, the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. These people are so special. They're so cherished by God and God counts them again, even after they have passed. An interesting idea. And the question could be posed, well, why specifically are we taught, are we taught this lesson? at the beginning of the book of Exodus. After all, the fact that God loves them and the fact that they were counted even after they had passed could very well have fit into the end of last book, the book of Genesis. And perhaps the answer is that now we're going to begin a very depressing chapter, quite literally and figuratively, in the history of the Jewish people. We're going to be dehumanized. We're going to be murdered. We're going to be enslaved. It's going to be a very sad time in our history. And perhaps we would think that, you know what? The Almighty kind of forgot about us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't love us. If he did love us, well, how come he allowed all these terrible things to happen? And specifically to forestall such a thought, the Almighty counts us right at the beginning of this very dark, phase of our history, he counts us again and reminds us that he still loves us and he's still with us in our despair. And it's not coincidental that Rashi highlights the fact that we're compared to stars. After all, stars you don't see during the day, only when it's dark outside, when things are dangerous, when things are uncertain, when there's a degree of hopelessness. It's nighttime. There's despair. That's when the lights shine. Now is a time where the Jewish people are going to experience darkness and the Almighty reminds us he still loves us and we're still valuable and our stars are still shining amidst the night. There's a new king in Egypt he doesn't know of Joseph. Of course, he knows of Joseph. Joseph was a very important person in Egyptian history, but he makes believe that he doesn't know of Joseph. He ignores Joseph's contribution to the people of Egypt, and he begins a nefarious plot to destroy the children of Israel. He says this, people behold the people, the children of Israel. They're becoming so numerous. They're taking over the country. They'll overwhelm us. Let us outsmart them. Let us subjugate them. And that way we will save ourselves. He's going to use wisdom, use cleverness to enslave the Jewish people. There's going to be a cunning plot. He's going to scheme to destroy the Jewish people. The Midrash tells us, that the Jewish people are going to be enslaved, but it's not going to happen overnight. Pharaoh is going to be very smart about it. He's going to know that it's not going to work to just enslave the Jewish people overnight. And therefore he developed an entire plot to trick us into becoming his slaves. He, be- he launched a patriotic program to build the infrastructure needed for the land of Egypt. And they would pay. And all loyal citizens should line up and sign up and join. And even Pharaoh himself joined. And once they got into a pattern of working, that's when they intensified the work. They pulled back the payment and they slowly eased them into slavery. They appointed taskmasters over the Jewish people. They built these storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, even though these places were ill-suited to have major buildings and major construction, the Jewish people built it nonetheless. The Egyptians thought that this would be the way to subjugate, to weaken, to destroy the Jewish people, but as much as they would try to afflict them in exact proportion to the persecution that the Jewish people experienced, that is precisely how strongly they continue to grow. The exact opposite happened. They tried to weaken the Jewish people, and every action that they did to weaken them actually made the Jewish people stronger, and the Egyptians became terribly disgusted with the Jewish people. Rashi tells us that they were like thorns in their eyes. They developed an irrational hatred. Nothing that the Jewish people could do could be viewed positively, positively, and they intensified their crushing harshness of their enslavement. They made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar, with bricks, and with every labor of the field. And with every labor of the field, all their labors that they performed with them were with crushing harshness. The Midrash tells us that they would deliberately select jobs that the people were ill-suited to perform. A bit strong guy was given a very small task. A little frail guy was given a very crushing load to bear. The men were given the jobs of women. The women were given jobs of men. The old people were given what young people should do. The young people were given what old people should do. They weren't using their workforce, their slave force. Effectively, the objective was to crush them, but it did not work. And then the king of Egypt resorted to infanticide. He called the Hebrew midwives. Their names were Shifra and Puah. And he developed a plot to kill the Jews before they're even born. When you deliver the Hebrew woman, he tells them, and you see if it's a boy, as the baby is being born, you kill them. If it's a girl, you let them live. But the midwives fear God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt spoke to them, and they caused the boys to live. Again, we see in this plot, they didn't right away enact the most harsh of decrees. Pharaoh initially instructed only the midwives to kill only the males when they're about to the, when they're about to be born and to do it in a way that the mothers wouldn't even notice. And afterwards, once that didn't work, he told everyone, all males, even males that are already born to be thrown into the water, and even Egyptian babies, are to be killed. And this shows a degree of paranoia that Pharaoh descended into. He was so worried about these Jewish people. He was so worried that someone's going to lead them towards freedom. And his necromancers and stargazers and gurus told him that they're going to have a leader that's going to save them. And he went absolutely mad, killing all kinds of infants, even the Egyptian infants, just to suppress this threat and to crush the salvation of the Jews in its infancy. Now, after Pharaoh went to the midwives and told them to kill the baby boys, and the boys were not dying, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, summoned the midwives. And he said to them, why didn't you listen to me? Why are the boys alive? So the midwife said to Pharaoh, well, these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're like experts. They're almost like animals. They don't even need a midwife to help them have a baby and therefore they're having babies and we have nothing to do about it we can't stop it and the postscript of this story is told in verse 20 god benefited the midwives shifra and puah they the people flourished and these midwives they got houses which means they got offices of high distinction in the jewish people now who are these people shifra and puah So Rashi tells us that these are actually nicknames. Their proper names are instead Yocheved. Shifra is Yocheved, who is going to be the mother of Moses and the daughter of Levi, the son of Jacob. And Puah, well, that's Moses' older sister, and her proper name is Miriam. Why were Miriam and Yocheved called Shifra and Puah? Why were they given alternative names? So as she tells us, the word Shifra means to beautify. And Yocheved was called Shifra because she would beautify the baby. Instead of killing the baby, she would do the exact opposite. She would beautify the baby. And Pua, that's Miriam. Why is she called Pua? Because Pua, it sounds like a, a sound that someone would make if they want to coo the baby, if they want to sing a lullaby to the baby. And that's what she would do. Not only would she not kill the babies, but she would also comfort and coo the babies who were crying. And this I think is interesting because these women are praised the fact that they didn't kill the children, but we're also told here that they would beautify, they would coo the babies. Why is the Torah highlighting this minor aspect of their kindness? Maybe they all should have been called Chaya, meaning life, because they gave life to the babies. Why why is the fact that they are doing all these extra stuff, they're beautifying, they're cooing the babies, why is that the name that they are given, this nickname, when they are described in the Torah in this episode? And I think the answer is that to not kill babies, that's no great achievement. Maybe anyone... With some decency, with some basic morality would not kill babies, even if it means endangering their lives. But when Shifra and Poo, when, when Miriam and Yocheved, when they beautified, they caressed, they cooed, they sung to the babies, that demonstrated that not only were they not evil, but they were pleasant. They had love. They were in, they were personally invested in the well-being of the Jewish people and the women under their watch. And that specifically is what they are highlighted for that they loved and they cared for those children. And the chapter ends with Pharaoh commanding his entire people, including the Egyptians, saying, Every son that will be born into the river you shall throw him, and every daughter shall you keep alive. Why did Pharaoh decree even on the Egyptians? So Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud, because his stargazers told him that today the Savior of Israel was born. But we don't know. Was he born as an Egyptian or was he born as a Jew? But we do see, we can foretell that he's going to suffer with water. And as we know, Moses indeed suffered with water. His grave sin that he committed in the book of Numbers was that when God told him to speak to a rock, he hit the rock instead. Now, Pharaoh interpreted that, well, if he's going to be stricken by water, what I'll do is I'll take all the males, all the babies, and I'll throw them into the water. And even the Egyptians, they too will suffer that same fate. You can never be too careful. This shows the the insanity that Pharaoh descended into in his hatred of of the Jewish people. And this, I think, is, is one of the saddest chapters in the Torah. The Jewish people are enslaved. There's this genocidal murder of babies. There's hopelessness, this horrific cruelty that they're facing. And immediately, there's hope. Moses is going to be born in the beginning of chapter 2. And though he will only arrive at the grand stage in 80 years, only when he's 80 years old is he going to lead the Jewish people towards salvation. But the seeds of redemption are, are already planted amid the darkest hour. And chapter 2 begins, A man from the house of Levi went and took the daughter of Levi. This is Moses' father and mother, and they got married. Rashi tells us, and the Talmud expands on the backstory, that Moses' father's name was Amram, and he was the leader of all the Jews. He was the greatest Jew in Egypt. And he saw that this wicked Pharaoh was decreeing that all boys should be thrown into the Nile. And he says, this is ridiculous. We're toiling for nothing. And he, we're going to have children. They're all going to be killed. So it's improper to have children under these circumstances. So he divorced his wife. And when the leader of the Jewish people makes that calculation and divorces his wife, all the rest of the Jews followed suit and they divorced their wives. And then Miriam. Amram's daughter came to him and says, you're worse than Pharaoh for three different reasons. Because Pharaoh only decreed on boys. But you, by separating from your wife and separating all the other men from their spouses, there's not going to be any boys nor any girls. Pharaoh only decreed that they should be killed in this world. But you're decreeing that they should be killed in this world and in the spiritual world because they're never going to be born. And finally, Pharaoh, we don't know if his decree is going to be successful. But if you don't get married, if you're not married, if you divorce your wife and all the people are not married, then we know for sure that the decree will be successful. And indeed, hearkening to Miriam, his daughter's advice, Amram remarried his wife. He did another marriage. And indeed, Moses was conceived And Miriam is secretly the heroine of the nation. If you think about it, not only did she take those steps and provide the impetus for Amram to remarry Yochevet and thus to bear Moses, but the whole nation would have skipped a generation if there's no marriages, there's no fertility, if there's no progeny, well, then the nation is doomed. In addition, the Talmud tells us, That Miriam is called a prophetess because before Moses was born, she predicted prophetically that her mother will bear a child that will save the Jewish people. And indeed, in verse 2, the woman, i.e. Moses' mother, Yocheved, she conceived and she gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good and she hid him for three months. What does it mean that you saw that he was good? The Talmud offers five interpretations, either that his name was Tov, meaning good, or his name was Tuvia, also meaning good. And in fact, our sages tell us that Moses has 10 different names. Alternatively, he was good because he was primed for prophecy. A fourth answer, that he was good, means that he was born circumcised almost as if it's implying that half of his spiritual journey was already done, so to speak, in heaven. When he arrived, he had a degree of perfection already. And finally, the sages tell us that he was good because when he was born, the entire house was awash with light. She hid him for three months, and after three months, she could no longer hide him. So she put him in a wicker basket. She made this makeshift little boat. She placed the boy into the boat, she placed him amongst the reeds on the bank of the Nile River, and she left Miriam stationed at a distance to watch what's going to happen with her infant brother. It's been pointed out, if you do the math, we know that Moses was born on the seventh day of Adar. If you fast forward three months later, meaning the day that Moses was placed in a boat by his mother... Allowed to float on his own in the Nile. That day is the sixth day of Sivan. Eighty years hence, when Moses is 80 years old on the sixth day of Sivan, that is the very same day that the Sinai experience happened, where Moses was privy partook in the most significant event in all of human history where God spoke to him and spoke to the nation from amidst the fire on top of Mount Sinai. And isn't it interesting that when on, the, on the very same day where Moses descends to the lowest of lows, there is a death warrant on him. Pharaoh wants him dead. His family has no choice. They abandon him. They cast him into the water. That's That's the lowest day of his life but it's also the day where he achieves his greatest heights. And this I would say just as an aside this kind of has some, you know, echoes of the Holocaust. The family wants to preserve the life of their child and in the Holocaust they would drop off children by strangers or by Christian monasteries. Uh, my wife's grandfather, uh, she should live with me well, she was part of the Kinder Transport. They put her, she was 5 years old and living in Austria. They put her on a train and they sent her to England, and that's how she survived the war. But taking a five-year-old child, a tiny child, and sending them on their own, it's something that no parent would ever do unless the circumstances were so extenuating that that was the only choice that you had to save the child's life. It's better to save them, to have them be alive, than to have them slaughtered by the barbarians. Moses is placed in a boat, a makeshift boat, and placed onto the river Nile, and his sister Miriam is watching from a distance to find out what's going to happen. Concurrently, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe by the river. She's coming there with her maidens, and she sees a basket amongst the reeds. She sends her maidservant, and they take it, and she opens up. She sees that there's a little baby there, and the baby's crying, and she recognizes that this is a Jewish child, He's one of the Hebrews. She figures out why the kid is being put there. And she takes pity on him. And she said, you know what? I am going to adopt this child. And of course, if you have a three-month-old baby, what's critical for you is to find someone who could be a wet nurse for the baby. Otherwise, the child will have nothing to eat. And meanwhile, his sister, Moses' sister, goes over to Pharaoh's daughter and says, shall I go and find you a wet nurse from the Jewish women who will nurse the baby for you? Rashi tells us that initially Pharaoh's daughter brought Moses to other Egyptian wet nurses, but Moses refused to suckle from those women. He said, almost kind of acting in this prophetic way, this mouth is going to talk in the future with God. How is it possible that this mouth could suckle from a non-Jewish source? And he refused to eat. And the daughter of Pharaoh was frantic trying to find someone that the child will be willing to eat from. And Moses' sister Miriam says, I have an idea and I'll find you a Jewish wet nurse. Maybe the child will eat from that source. And indeed, the girl, meaning Miriam, summoned the boy's mother the actual biological mother of Moshe, and presented her before Pharaoh's daughter and said, this woman could be the nurse. Obviously, concealing the fact that this woman is the actual biological mother of her adopted baby. And Pharaoh's daughter says, okay, take this boy, nurse him for me, and I will give your pay. The Talmud tells us something amazing, that the righteous people, not only do they get what they want, they get paid for it. Yochevet got what she wanted. She got her son back, so to speak. She was able to raise him for those critical few years before he was weaned. And she also got a stipend from Pharaoh's daughter for doing what she wanted to do anyhow. The boy grew up. He grew up those first few years together with his biological family, but under the understanding that he was the adopted son of Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh. He grew up and he is returned to the auspices of the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was an adopted son to her. She named him Moses, Moshe. Why? Because she drew him from the water king, Minhamayim, Mishishihu. It's interesting that the name, the eternal name of Moses, even though our sages tell us that he had 10 different names, but the name that he's most commonly called is the name assigned to him by Pharaoh's daughter, not the name given to him by his parents. And it's actually a mystery. Some of the commentaries puzzle over how did the daughter of Pharaoh, how did she know Hebrew, to know the name Moshe means Mishishihu, it's the same root as Mishishihu, meaning to draw him out, and there is one opinion that suggests that she actually was converting to Judaism, and she indeed learned Hebrew. And it's also interesting that Moses actually grew up in Pharaoh's palace, and in retrospect, we could see how this was all part of the grand plan. Moses has to kind of straddle the very thin line between immersion into the Egyptian way of life, but also not forgetting his Jewish roots. He was accustomed to the ways of Egypt of of the Egyptians. He knew his way. He knew how to navigate amongst the people of the palace. And all those skills will come in quite handy when he has to go negotiate with Pharaoh. But also his life and his life circumstances and his name even reminded him that he indeed was part of the Jewish nation. That's where he came from. And that's where his allegiances lied. And then we read about Moshe coming of age. It happened in those days that Moses grew up and he went out to his brethren and observed their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. This is the first episode of Moshe as an adult. Moshe, of course, Moses is going to be the central character in the rest of the Torah. In fact, at the death of Moses is the end of the Torah and the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And we see at the very beginning, that where we're introduced to him as an adult, we see a string of episodes that underscores his sterling character and the roots of why he became this great leader of the Jewish people and the greatest man that ever lives. The first thing we find out is that he goes out and he identifies with his brethren and he observes their burdens and he sees their suffering. He invests his heart and his eyes to suffer and empathize together with, with them, He sees what people are going through, and that demonstrates his selflessness. He wasn't just living in the ivory tower of the palace. He cared what was happening to his brethren when they were enslaved. That is the root of his credentials for leadership. The Midrash tells us that God, so to speak, tells Moses, Moses, you were on a high platform and you went down. To see the suffering of your brethren, I too will descend from my heavenly heights and I will talk to you. So Moses sees the Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turns this way and he turns that way. He sees that no one's there, there is no man. So he strikes down the Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand. Moshe not only sees the suffering of the people, he takes action. He does not allow the evil of the Egyptian man striking the defenseless Hebrew of his brethren. He doesn't allow that to go without doing anything. And right away he takes action. He's intolerant of evil and he kills the perpetrator. Rashi tells us something fascinating. He turns this way and turns that way and saw that there is no man. What does that mean? He looks this way into the man itself, looks that way and sees that this Egyptian man is not destined to have a Jewish convert, there's no spiritual spark within him that will eventually bear fruit, and therefore he was able to kill him. Alternatively, we could say that Moses looked this way and looked that way, meaning Moses, after all, was a bit conflicted. He had his Egyptian roots, he had his Jewish roots. So he looked this way and he looked that way, and he realized That there is no man. You can't be partially Egyptian, partially Jewish. You have to choose your side. And he saw, look this way, look that way, there is no man. And what does he do? He strikes down the Egyptian. That is a description of Moses' first day as an adult. And the next day he went out and behold, now there's two Hebrew men and they're fighting. And again, Moshe intervenes. He said to the wicked one, why do you strike your fellow? He's trying to break up a fight between two Jews. And this individual responded to Moses. Who appointed you as a dignitary? Are you a ruler? Are you a judge over us? Are you gonna kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses frightened, and he said, Oh no, the matter has been known. Pharaoh hears what happened, but that Moses killed the Egyptian, and he tries to kill Moses, and Moses had to flee. And he settles in the land of Midian and he arrives at the well. There's two Jews fighting. Rashi tells us, who are these two Jews? Dasam and Aviram, Dathan and Abiram. These are going to be Moses' nemeses going forward. They're going to cause all kinds of trouble for Moses from here on out. And it's interesting. Both of them in the future are going to be adversaries of Moses. You would imagine that maybe one of them, that maybe one of them, i.e. the individual that Moses was standing up for, trying to defend the victim of the person who was striking would have stood up for Moses, would have been Moses' friend. But the answer is, is that when there's two people fighting and you get involved, it's quite likely that they will make peace and they'll still hate you. Sometimes it's best to not get involved, especially if you want to retain good relations with both people. Now, this is very interesting. So what happens? Moses find is frightened, and he said, indeed, the matter is known. So you read this quite simply. What it seems like is that Moses becomes frightened because now these Jews are talking about his crime, his murder of the Egyptian that happened yesterday. Rashi has an entirely different way of reading this verse. Moses was fearful. Moses became frightened. What, he became, what did he become frightened for? He became frightened because he realized that the Jewish people have snitches, and therefore he was worried maybe they don't have the merits to be redeemed, to be saved. And then he says, indeed, the matter is known. So again, read it quite simply. It sounds like indeed the matter of his crime of yesterday became known, and maybe that's the simple understanding. But Rashi brings a Midrashic interpretation, and the matter that Moses was always wa- wondering about, meaning the ma- the matter of why the Jewish people suffered and why they sinned and why they have to bear this terrible burden, that they're being enslaved and being tormented and harassed by the Egyptians. But now I see that the matter is known. They have people like Dustin and Aviram, people that really make the Jewish nation worthy of being treated this way. Moses has to flee Pharaoh wants him dead, he is a dead man walking, and he ends up in Midian, and he's there by the well. He goes to the well because Jacob, his forefather, his great-grandfather from his mother's side, also when he wanted to settle down and get married, he too went to find a spouse by the well. And at the well, there are a bunch of girls and they're the the daughters of Jethro, who's the minister of Midian. They come to give water to their father's sheep, but they're being harassed by the rest of the shepherds and they drive them away. Rashi tells us that Jethro was someone who was the minister. He was an idolater and at this time, he abandoned idolatry and therefore they excommunicated him. And this again shows us a little bit about Jethro's character. He was courageous enough to admit that he had lived, that he had lived a life of error and he sought a new path of life. He rejected idolatry. But as a result of that, he became public enemy number one and his daughters were fair game and they will always be harassed. But Moses, of course, he's intolerant of evil and the good and the care for others had penetrated him so deeply that all kinds of evil were anathema and all of them elicited an immediate response he right away defends these poor girls these defenseless girls and he saves them and he gives water to their sheep so they returned to jethro to reuel jethro like moses has multiple names and Ruel Jethro, their father, says, I don't get it. How can you come back so quickly? How come you weren't harassed today? And they respond, Well, there was an Egyptian man who saved us. And he helped us and he drew water for us and he watered the he gave water to the sheep. And Jethro says, Well, well, where is he? Did you bring him home? Maybe he'll marry one of you. So they went, they got Moses, and Moses decided to indeed marry one of his daughters, and he marries Zipporah. The daughter of Jethro that is Moses' spouse and they have a child named Gershom, meaning I have become a stranger in a foreign land. Rashi tells us something that will become critical a little bit later on in the Parsha, that one of the terms that Jethro instituted, the conditions upon which he agreed to give his daughter to Moses, was that Moses would not leave Midian, would not depart from the neighborhood of his father-in-law, unless he got permission from Jethro. And chapter two ends where we once again ping pong back to the Jewish people in Egypt. During those days, it happened that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the work and they cried out. Rashi points out that there doesn't seem to be really a connection between the first between the beginning of this sentence and the end. The king of Egypt died, and suddenly the children of, of, of Israel groaned because of the work, and they cried out. What does the death of the king of Egypt have to do with the children of Israel groaning from the work? And Rashi tells us something that's very painful to hear, that when it says the king of Egypt died, it doesn't mean he actually died, but rather he became a leper, and the only way that he thought he could heal himself was to bathe in the blood of recently slaughtered young children, and he would take children of the Jewish people, slaughter them, and in savage brutality bathe in their blood. The people cried out because of this terrible, terrible things that were happening to them. God hears their crying. He remembers His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the Jew, the children of Israel, and God. New and God, of course, is going to now reach out to Moses and give him the instruction to go save the Jewish people. Chapter 3 begins, and we're back talking about Moses. He is a shepherd for the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he is taking the sheep far away into the wilderness, Rashi tells us, because he doesn't want them to graze in fields and pastures belonging to other people. He arrives at the mountain of God. This is, of course, Mount Sinai. It's not yet the mountain of God, but it will be the mountain of God. And an angel appears to him in the blaze of a fire amidst a burning bush. Moshe sees the bush is burning, but it is not being consumed. And this, of course, is quite a peculiar sight. Bush being burned, but not being consumed by the conflagration. Moses thought, I will turn aside now and look at this great sight. Why will the bush not be burned? And Hashem saw that he turned aside to see and got called out to him from amidst the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he replied, Here I am, Hineni, don't come closer to here. Take off your shoes from your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. There's a remarkable Rashi here. We know this is going to be Moses' first prophecy talking to God who's appearing in a burning bush, Rashi asked the question, why is God appearing from a burning bush, from a small little shrubbery plant, not from a big cedar tree, a sequoia tree, something a little bit more impressive? And Rashi tells us something fascinating. Why? Because the verse tells us, God, so to speak, is with us in our pain. The Jewish people are suffering, and God, so to speak, Suffers alongside them. He too has his prophecy from amidst a small little pathetic bush, not from a big tree. And it's interesting. Moses also excelled at the quality of bearing the burden of others. And in doing that, he emulated God. Maybe we could even say that God tells him to take off his shoes. This is maybe the ultimate quality of leadership, the ultimate act of selflessness. After all, your shoes meld to your feet, but a great leader has to be able to walk not only in his own shoes, but in the shoes of others. Take off your shoes, Moses is told. And this begins what ends up being a week of deliberation, of negotiation, where God initially tells Moses, go save the Jewish people, and Moses is going to pose all kinds of reservations and all kinds of excuses to get out of this responsibility. God tells Moses, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to gaze towards God. God continues, I've seen the affliction of my people that is in Egypt, and I have heard its outcry. I'm, I'm partaking, I'm, I'm noticing everything that's happened to the Jewish people. Behold, the outcry of the Jewish people has come to me. I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now I will dispatch you. You'll go to Pharaoh and you shall take my people out of Egypt. And Moses poses two rebuttals. First of all, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm not worthy of talking to kings. In addition, why are the Jewish people meritorious of them being saved? And God responds with answers, To both questions. For I shall be with you indeed. Maybe you yourself. You're not worthy of being saved. But I will go with you. And therefore. It's really me. Who's going to be operating via you. In addition the Jewish people. They are the nation that's going to receive the Torah. And therefore they already today. Have the merits of Sinai. And the merits of being Saved. So again, Moshe asked two questions. He posed two reasons why he's not a good candidate. And God answers both. And Moses continues. Verse 13. Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your forefathers had sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Which name of God should I say sent me to go save the Jewish people? The Ramban tells us here that the names of God, the many names of God, refer to the different kinds of treatment that he has with the world. Moses wanted to know with which treatment will the Jewish people be tended to. Of course, there's a big brouhaha regarding the names of God in the Torah, but in truth, each one of them connotes a different form of a relationship. And therefore, Moses was asking not which name of God, but which relationship that is manifested in which in those names of God which one of those will be displayed during the exodus and God says okay I'll tell you which name the name is I shall be as I shall be this is one of the names of God I will be with you now I will be with you in every subsequent suffering exile Painful experience that you will experience, I will always be with you. Tell the Jewish people that the characteristic, the treatment that is going to save them is the characteristic, so to speak, of God where he's with us in our pain, not only this pain, but also future pains. And Moses responds, I can't go to the Jewish people and tell them that name. They're now suffering one tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. It's enough for them to worry about this one. They don't need to worry about future pain and suffering. And indeed, God says, okay, so shall you say to the children of Israel, Hashem, the God of your forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that name of God has dispatched me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my remembrance from generation to generation. You have the name, you have the mandate. Your third question has been answered. Go and gather the elders of the children of Israel and tell them that we are going to begin the Exodus and go to the land of Israel. They'll listen to you, you come to Pharaoh, and you'll tell the Jewish people the secret code. If you remember last week, Jacob and Joseph, before they died, they gave the Jewish people a secret code that's going to be uttered by the ultimate savior of the Jewish people, God sends him with that code, go gather the elders, tell them the code, and then go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that we want three days of respite, we want to go for a three-day journey into the wilderness and to bring offerings and sacrifice to Hashem our God, and then we will come back. In, in essence, God's telling Moses, you're going to gather the elders and you're going to make a petition to Pharaoh, to take the Jewish people on a three day spiritual uh, oasis into the wilderness to bring sacrifices to God. Now, one of the questions that's been asked is, is that, is this three day plan, is it just a ruse? Just a way to get Pharaoh to sign off on the deal? Or is it really the plan? And I think the answer is that you remember when God told Abram about the enslavement, it was supposed to be a 400 year enslavement. In reality, the Jewish people only stayed in Egypt for 210 years. They really had 190 years left to go. But the problem was that the Jewish people were now at the depths of spiritual decay. And they couldn't last. They couldn't withstand another 190 years of exile and maintain their identity. And the plan was to take a three-day spiritual oasis to invigorate them with the strength of to withstand another 190 years of exile. Ultimately, of course, what ended up happening is that Pharaoh didn't agree to that and therefore he lost his leverage. And when the Jewish people left, they left permanently and retroactively those, that 400 year clock began ticking not when the Jewish people got to Egypt, but instead with the birth of Isaac. It seems like Moses is going to sign off on this plan. But chapter 4 begins that Moses responds, No, they won't believe me. They won't listen to my voice. They'll say God did not appear to you. Moses is posing a fourth challenge to God's plan. They're going to question. They'll say I'm a fraud. They'll say I'm a charlatan. They'll say God really didn't appear to me. And God says, Okay, I'll give you a few tricks. I'll give you a few miracles that will prove the legitimacy of your, of your prophecy. Take the staff, throw it on the floor, turns into a serpent, stick your hand into your shirt, pull it out, it turns white, it turns leprous, and stick it back in, and it turns back to its regular color. And Rashi tells us that both of these two miracles, both of them highlight the fact that Moses spoke negatively about the Jewish people. He spoke Lashon Hara about the Jewish people, and therefore he was reprimanded by having the signs shown to him both to represent Lashon Hara evil talk, i.e. that is what the snake does, and that, and someone who speaks evil talk gets their hand turned into leprosy. Moshe questioned the Jewish people. He questioned the faith of the Jewish people. They won't believe me, but they are believers. And because Moshe spoke negatively about the Jewish people. Therefore, he was essentially punished by being berated that he spoke negatively about the Jewish people and therefore it turned into a serpent. The staff, in addition, he was punished by having his hand stuck into his shirt and pulled out as leprosy. And finally, Moses launches two more reasons why he is not the right man He doesn't speak well. I'm not fluid. I can't talk very clearly. And finally, he tells God, you know what? Send someone else, meaning send Aaron. And Rashi tells us something very important. Rashi tells us that really this entire seven day of the seven days of negotiation, this whole back and forth, this whole dialogue that takes a whole chapter between God and Moses, God tells him go and Moses says no. And he launches six different reasons why he's not the right man for the job. All of that was really because Moses did not want to offend his older brother Aaron. His older brother Aaron is a great man. He's a prophet. Moses thought that he's not the right guy for the job. Aaron is. And if Aaron sees his baby brother taking this important role of leadership, he's going to be offended. He's going to be envious. And therefore, Moses concocted all these problems just to push it away and give the job to Aaron. And that was his final protest. Let Aaron go instead of me. And God responded, the wrath of Hashem burned against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he will surely speak. Moreover, behold, he is going out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will rejoice in his heart. Aaron is the only person in the Torah that the Torah testifies that he has no envy. Aaron will not only be happy that you're the leader, but he'll be happy in his heart. Don't think that Aaron will suffer because of you being nominated to leadership. He'll be happy in his heart. You're going to be the leader, but Aaron is going to be your aide. He will be your spokesman. You'll speak and Aaron will understand and he will disseminate those words further. He shall speak for you to the people and it will be that he will be your mouth and you will be his leader. And this staff, this magical staff that turned into a serpent, you shall take in your hand and with which you shall perform the signs. It's interesting, the Midrash tells us, the backstory of the staff, Moses was the ninth owner of this staff. It belonged to Adam, to Noah, to shame, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. And eventually it got into the hands of Moses. The Talmud tells us that this, actually, this staff originated in the Garden of Eden. Eventually ended up in Egypt. After Joseph died, it was placed in some museum in Egypt. And then when Jethro, who was originally Egyptian, when he left Egypt, he took it with him. He pilfered it. And then in a story that was later copied by all kinds of fairy tales, Jethro had this staff in his backyard and whoever wanted to marry his daughter had to pull the staff out. And therefore, when Moses came to marry Jethro's daughter, he was able to pull out the staff and that showed him that Moses was the right person to marry his daughter, and of course that staff was is going to play a very important role in being used, somewhat, so to speak, as a wand for Moshe to do all the miracles and the Ten Plagues and leading the Jewish people out of Egypt. So Moshe is finally convinced, and he goes to gather his stuff and to head to Egypt. So Moses went to return to Jether, to Yisro, his father, and he said to him, let me go now back to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive, and Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. If you'll remember, one of the conditions that Jethro had to Moses to marry his daughter was that he would not leave without permission, and now Moses is going and asking permission to leave, and Jethro quite graciously signed off on that. So Moses takes his wife and his children, they go on a donkey, Rashi tells us something very interesting, that this donkey is not some regular donkey, it's the same donkey that Abraham rode when he went to the Bain of Isaac, and it's the very same donkey that the King Messiah is going to ride upon to lead the Jewish people to their ultimate salvation. This sounds like it's some idea in transportation. He's not—he's not going not to come in a Cadillac. He's going to come in a donkey. What this actually means is that in Jewish literature, the term donkey, of course, refers to an animal, but it also refers to an idea. The word chamor, which is the Hebrew word for donkey, is etymologically similar to the word chomer, which means physicality. When someone is riding a donkey, it means they're in total control of their instincts. Of their physicality. Abraham, Moses, Messiah, the three greatest paragons of our history, all of them exemplify that they were the rider. They were in total control. They had the reins over the donkey. And God tells Moses, when you return to Egypt, you're going to do all these miracles. Go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let the Jewish people go. And if you refuse, I shall kill your firstborn son. Part of the deal is that Moshe has to have the temerity, the chutzpah, to go tell an autocrat, maybe the most powerful person in the world, if you don't listen to me, I will kill your firstborn son. There's a very odd episode that happens along the way. Uh, Moses is stopping off in a hotel. Uh, He is attacked by a snake. And the reason why he's attacked by a snake is because he didn't circumcise his next son, Eliezer. His wife realizes what happens. She quickly circumcises the baby and the snake uncoils from Moses and slithers away. And now God speaks to Aaron and tells Aaron, go meet Moses. And they rendezvous by the mountain of God and they compare notes And these are brothers who haven't seen each other for many decades. And they go and they head back to Egypt and they gather the elders of Israel. And they do all the miracles that God gave to Moses. We mentioned two of them. The miracle of the staff turning into a serpent. The miracle of sticking his hand into a shirt. And an additional miracle of pouring water onto the ground. And when it hits the ground, it turns into blood. The people believed the leaders of Israel that were convened. They bought in. They believed that Moses was going to save them. And they started heading out to Pharaoh. And who arrives at Pharaoh's door? And afterwards, chapter five begins, Moses and Aaron arrive at Pharaoh's door. Only Moses and Aaron arrived there. Those elders, they kind of slunk away. You know, they were excited about going to say the Jewish people. But as they get closer and closer to the palace, they realize, I don't know if I want to walk over to the autocrat, to the maniac, to the bloodthirsty murderer and start talking smack to him and threatening him and telling him I'm going to kill his firstborn son. It's probably not the smartest thing to do. And they just slipped away and eventually all of them slipped away and all you have is Moses and Aaron arriving to Pharaoh. And they tell him, so said Hashem, the God of Israel, send out my people and they'll celebrate with me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh is totally not impressed. Who is this God that I should listen to? Who is this God of Israel? And they said to him, this is the God of the Hebrews. All, he, all we want is a three-day journey to the wilderness to bring sacrifices to God. And the king of Egypt said to them, well, what are you doing here? You know, These people, they're servants. Why are you coming up with all these cockamamie ideas? Why are you disturbing the people from their work? You're making it worse, not better. The people, they must be, they're not working hard enough and they're coming up with all these fantasies of being saved. This is not going to happen. We are going to make their lives a little bit more busy to banish any feelings of redemption. And Pharaoh is totally not impressed with Moses and Aaron, does not give in to their demands, of course not, but instead makes life much worse for the Jewish people. It used to be that they were given straw, the material needed to make the bricks that they had a quota to fulfill every day. Pharaoh orders the taskmasters, we're going to maintain the quota, the daily quota every day, but we're going to withhold from them the straw. In fact, we're going to add another component. They're no longer going to be get, going to be given the straw. They're going to have to find the straw and use the straw to make the bricks, but their load of bricks, the quota that they need to produce every day is not going to be reduced. Obviously says Pharaoh, these people are listening to all these false words. We have to make their lives a bit busier. So the people spread out throughout the entire land of Egypt gathering straw. And the taskmaster pressed, saying, complete your work. You have to do this. They whipped them hard. You have responsibility. You have to produce the same quota as you did during the times when you got the straw. And the foremen of the children of Israel, these were the intermediates of between the Egyptian taskmasters and the poor slaves, the poor Jewish slaves, they were beaten because the Jewish people did not produce the quota and who suffered not necessarily was it just the slaves themselves, but it was also the foremen, the people who were the who were tasked by the Egyptian taskmasters to urge the nation to produce the quota they were the ones who suffered the blows it's interesting in chapter 11 of the book of numbers, Moses is going to be looking for leaders to help him lead the people. And who is he going to select? He's going to select these same people, these same Jewish foremen who are beaten by the Egyptian in order to protect their constituents. And again, we see the qualifications of leadership. It's selflessness. It's empathy and it's suffering for the people under your charge. And the foreman, they come complaining to Pharaoh. Well, what are you doing here? You're not giving us straw, yet you tell us to make bricks. We're being beaten for the sin of the people. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 you're lazy. You're very lazy. That's why you're telling us that you want to bring offerings to Hashem. You go to work, provide the same quota of bricks without the straw. And of course, this is very stressful for everyone involved. You cannot reduce your daily amount of bricks but you don't have the materials needed to produce it. And Moses and Aaron, of course, feel terrible about this. They wanted to help, apparently. Uh, They wanted to help and things got worse and they suffered the ire of the Jewish people. And Moses, of course, goes back to God and says to him, my Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? Don't make me do this. I'm making it worse from the time that I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He made it worse for the people, and you did not rescue them. And the the Parsha ends, chapter 6, verse 1. Hashem said to Moses, Now you will see what I shall do to Pharaoh, for through a strong hand he will send them out, and through a strong hand he will drive them from his land. Moses asked a legitimate question. I wanted to make it better. It ended up being worse. And God says, this is all part of the plan. You're going to see, just wait and see what's going to happen. Not only will Pharaoh send them out, he will drive them out. He will banish them from his land. And just to end off, I want to maybe suggest an answer to Moses' question. You know, if God is caring about the Jewish people, if God is listening to their pain, if God is suffering alongside with them, why indeed does it get worse when it's supposed to get better? So maybe we could suggest... The following, like we mentioned earlier, the Jewish people were slated to be there for 400 years, but God in his kindness allowed them to leave after 210 and retroactively began the clock from the time of Isaac's birth. Exactly 400 years from the birth of Isaac is the exodus from Egypt. So in effect, now it's crunch time. God has to compress 190 years of further suffering to pave the way for the salvation. The Jewish people are about to leave. They don't know it. It's getting worse, not better. But ultimately, in God's calculation, the fact that it's getting worse is going to expedite their salvation. But right now, the way it stands, Parshas Shemos ends, and things got worse, not better, and Moses is in conversation with the Almighty.